0: Brings you the Haunted Sea with host Scott Mardis. Scott Mardis, welcome back to a new episode of the Haunted Sea. After an extended break, this is we're back on Halloween. I wish everyone a, a very happy Halloween. <clears throat> and our guest today is Carac Saint Laurent a cryptozoologist who has an organization called Crash Course Cryptozoology. Hello, Carrick. Hello, Scott. How are you? I'm good. Would you like to explain to people the organizational nature of Crash Course Cryptozoology?
1: Yes, I would. It's, it's interesting because Crash Course Cryptozoology started out as a, as a pretty simple cryptozoology YouTube channel. I started it back in 2017. I think it was uh, March of 2017. And the idea that I wanted to have was I, I grew up a lot on these kind of really cool cryptozoology channels on YouTube. They were very easy to access, and it really helped me get more knowledgeable about events going on in the field. And what I wanted to do was make a channel that could do that, but also be uh, more well-presented and more well-researched and informed and uh, scientifically thorough than previous videos had been. And as time went on, through you know networking and working on more projects especially, it kind of snowballed into something much more, which I guess at this point is something of a an organization slash project, a research project in a way, that really aims to examine cryptozoology very scientifically, partially in an attempt to, to really bring cryptozoology into the scientific forefront as a frontier of zoology. And, you know, that could include talking about things psychologically, sociologically, yeah. zoologically, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: Well, the state of cryptozoology, to be honest, is in pretty sad shape today because many of the famous figures in cryptozoology who were academics, such as Bernard Hovelman's Roy Mackle, and J. Richard Greenwell, have passed away,
2: mm.
0: and there's nobody with their credentials that has stepped up to take their place.
1: Yeah, so, you're absolutely right.
0: So the ship has kind of drifted, and less knowledgeable people have started cults of personality mm. that have really, in some ways, taken the, the field backwards rather than forwards.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's, it's strange because it almost seems like these are not people that would like to see cryptozoology leave its kind of more uh, mockery-oriented stigmas, but would rather uh, publicize the field on those premises, which I don't think is a good direction to go.
0: I totally agree with you. And it's it's really, as somebody that's been doing this myself for over a quarter of a century, it's really nice to see somebody coming behind me that feels sort of the same way that's trying to stress quality over quantity.
1: Hmm. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, I, and I'm glad that, that you look at it like that, because I, I respect you massively as a researcher, and you're kind well, of one well, of the examples. thank you very much, and
0: I respect you, too.
1: Well, thank you, Scott. I appreciate yeah. that.
0: And, um, you know, we I'll let you explain the origins of this new Lake Champlain organization that we've put together, if you would
1: like. Absolutely. So the, the origins of what's, what's now the Lake Champlain Zoological Inquiry, uh, I, I would say probably stem a bit further back than the documentary coming out, but probably kind of start manifesting around there. Because you and I, the first project that we ever worked jointly on thus far was the documentary I'm producing called Release the Bodette Film, uh, which is a, a Lake Champlain documentary, of course, about Champ in general, but it also focuses specifically on the Bodette footage, which is kind of one of the most controversial pieces of, of champ evidence. Maybe the most controversial, I would say, uh, aside from maybe something like the Sandromancy photograph, because of just how contended that one is. But as we worked together more, I think the four of us, which are the, the two Sanborn brothers, Jeremy and Ryan and us, uh, kind of found that we really liked everyone's approaches to the subject. And it was you about... Oh, what maybe two and a half weeks ago now, three weeks ago that brought up to me, hey, we should uh, we should form an organization of some sort. Yeah. Um, and I had been away for that weekend, so I kind of got to to go through the list of what you had sent me in order. But when I got to that, I was like, wow, that would be a really cool idea actually, because I I would love to be able to um, to put emphasis on something aside from doing things generally, which I which is what my main focus is on especially with somebody who I would consider has probably some of the most experience at Lake Champlain. And um, so I, I jumped onto to Wix, this website-making e- editor, pretty much that day after we announced the filming, or sorry, the uh, the uh, creation of this organization and uh, put together a nice website that I'm still kind of adding a few things to. But so far, it's looking really good. We have a lot of people sign up for the newsletter so far, actually. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's great because... And I've heard this from other researchers who I know so far. It's great to see people actually come together and say, hey, we think that this subject has enough potential to really undergo like like peer-review-level scientific analysis, no matter what the outcome ends up being. We just yeah. want to figure out what the hell is going on at Lake Champlain. That's exactly. What That's the
0: best way to approach it. If there's nothing going on and people are mistaken – We need to know that so people will stop wasting their times looking for something that's out there. I personally believe there is something out there Mm. or I wouldn't continue to look. And if it is out there, we need to find it and, and confirm and verify that it's real
1: exactly and it's interesting because people tend to very much when they write off something like that and you know again like you said who knows maybe they're right maybe there is nothing in the lake but if there's nothing in the lake something's happening around the lake where for some reason at this particular spot not in the lake you know in New Hampshire that's just as big but no one else goes to it and or isn't as popular with tourists it's at at these lakes specifically where we're seeing these weird some kind of reptilian type sightings and Uh, that's not a very well-documented psychological phenomenon, so whatever's happening is not well scientifically documented, and that, that warrants investigation.
0: Yeah, and I want to emphasize that, to everyone that this organization we put together is a completely full way democratic organization mm. and that nobody is under any pressure to conform their views and ideas to the other three guys in the organization, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. I want to get away from the emphasis on personalities and put the emphasis on the, the, the research. You know, that's mm-hmm. the important thing. Absolutely.
1: I, I, I agree.
0: Guys, I think you guys agree with me, you know. And, um, hopefully, we can put more critical analysis on this situation than perhaps some others are doing at the moment.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah. So, why don't you tell us how you got into cryptozoology? What was your pathway into this
1: field? Now, that's an interesting question because I don't know that I've talked to you about this one yet. I think the only podcast I've, I've roughly discussed it on was Alexander Petakov's Out of the Shadows podcast. It's interesting. I, I grew up watching, like, a lot of Scooby-Doo and things like that when I was very little. So I kind of had this predisposed nature to liking monster stories. Um, when I was in about second grade, I happened to move into this town in southern New Hampshire called Lymeboro. Less than 1,000 people live there. It's very sparsely populated. It's, it's out in literally the sticks. We're in the middle of the forest out there. And... Um, in in this town, I, I happened when I was oh probably in fourth grade. So about two years after I had moved there, maybe two and a half years, I uh, had what I can really only categorize as as a, an encounter with what I am convinced was what you would call a Sasquatch, or at least something that fit very closely that description. And that was something that really changed my life because that was um, there was no going back for me. After that, there was no like, well, I can, you know, work on this for a few years when I'm an adult and then leave it behind and do something else. It's like, no, this is something that has captured my interest much too much, you know, too far. I'm too far into this now. And ever since then, my main focus uh, was pretty much, you know, uh, Sasquatch research. You know, John Bindernagel, speaking of people who were who were academic giants in the field. He died yes. in 2015 um, Was was, you know, my hero right. Right.
2: was
0: really sad because he was one of the few academics that was taken in serious
1: yeah and you know he was he was such a thorough person with you you could ask him about any aspect of the sasquatch phenomenon and he essentially had a pretty reasonable uh hypothetical answer to to propose and um you know his books on the subject are magnificent as well but um for a while, I kind of dipped out of it, you know, in that transitional stage in high school and all that. And then afterwards, I really started getting back into it in my last year of high school, kind of getting back into not just Sasquatch research, but also sort of researching general cryptozoology. And I, and I found myself in the outskirts of circles with, that included people like you and Alexander Petikov and Lauren Coleman, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and eventually, when I was working with a, uh, an ex-friend of mine, Nate Brislin, who's a fantastic researcher, by the way, um, we, he, he did more networking than I did for a while. And I kind of picked up that I was I should do a bit more of it when I saw him kind of putting his neck out there more. And that really helped because I got to meet you, I got to meet Alexander Petikov, I got to meet a, a lot of people that I would have never met otherwise. And uh, you know somehow about you know one and a half years after that, here I am and I'm kind of in the middle of that circle now, to some degree, or at least in the middle of that, that network of people. Which is yeah. really an amazing experience, and uh, you know, I'm getting to go on expeditions now. I'm I'm able to plan out expeditions and dedicate enough money to be able to go on them. And I'm making a documentary. I want to make more documentaries, and I'm still running the YouTube channel. And it's it's just really, uh, you know, I'm writing a book. It's 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 been an incredible experience, and I'm really grateful for it. But I'm also really happy that as I've gone further into that network and web, I've met more and more people and this is the opposite of what I thought would happen, I've met more and more people who are of the same opinion in the sense that, well, I don't necessarily have any personal stock in whether I believe in this or not, which is another great anecdote from John Bindernagel that you shouldn't believe in something, you should be convinced of something. Yeah. Um, that, that say, well, I don't necessarily believe in this, but goddamn, I want to know what's going on. And that's exactly what I think is, I don't know what's going on, but I would sure as hell like to find out.
0: Well, yeah, you know... Um- well, I had a sighting myself, as you're aware of, mm. in 1994. So, yes. You know, these things happen. They're extremely rare when they do happen. Mm. Um, but as you progress in this field, you've met a lot of people. You've met probably mostly good people, but you've probably also met some bad people. Oh, yes. for For it's every side of cryptozoology, which gets back mm-hmm. to this idea that I'm talking about the cult of personality mm-hmm. where it's not don't look at the evidence it's about look at me i'm a, i'm an expert
1: you know yes and it's it's weird it's like a warped version of reality because the definition of evidence to to people who are in it for personal gain is not the same definition that people who are in it for the scientific inquiry define evidence it's not the same thing which is a weird idea but it's it's true
0: yeah and you have to question the integrity and motivations of people that take that approach.
1: Yes, right. Yeah, but it's, you
0: know, like I said, it's the downside of it. Let's not dwell on it, but we had mm. to mention it at some point.
1: Yes, you know, it is it's it is intrinsic to that field. For anyone who may be listening for the first time and wants to get into this, that's inescapable. What You don't avoid that, you overcome that is what happens, or yeah. what should happen anyway.
0: Yeah. Myself, I was a late bloomer. I didn't really get serious about this till I was thirty. Oh, really? Yeah, I was pursuing a career in um, music, and I finally I just got. I so first podcast, right? Yeah, I finally got so frustrated with trying to get ahead with music. I I switched gears. Hmm. And I've been doing this. I mean, I still play music occasionally, but not like I did before. You know, it's not my main thing. But mm.
1: but these things happen, you know? Right. Now, did you have your signing at Lake Champlain before or after you had switched? After. After, okay.
0: Yeah, I had moved up there probably about three months before my sighting happened. Oh, so wow. I was actively out watching when this happened. Hmm. Yeah. which
1: is what you'd have to be doing to see something like that happen. If there is an animal in there, and it's it's yeah. as rare as it seems to be statistically, you'd certainly need to be there 24-7. It's amazing that anything happened on the trip that we went on.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, the documentary, I was not there for the first day of filming. Mm-hmm. Why do you fill us all in on what happened the first day?
1: Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad that I actually really do get to do some of this because um, – you know, with other programs, you don't always get to say this, but because the documentary is mostly oriented on in information that isn't presented in our expedition, I can. Um, so the first day was essentially kind of us getting set up. We interviewed the witness that we could interview in person, and we, uh, we set up a trail camera near Otter Creek, which is where a lot of these, uh, these land sightings happen. And what we found what was interesting about Otter Creek was that on either side of Otter Creek is the lake. So it, it suddenly made sense... That if there is an amphibious animal, even if it's not an amphibian, if it has amphibious behavior, uh, if it wanted to get to the river from the lake, this is where it would go. And it would just hop over the, the very short road. It's you know yeah. like a four-foot-long road, not a very long slide at all.
0: Well, there are very deep parts of uh, Otter Creek. I think in some places it may be actually 40 feet deep.
1: Yeah, it's actually a it's very, a it's, it's not really a creek, it's a river, really. Yeah. Which is what uh, one of our teammates, Jeremy Sanborn, who's been diving there for a while, pointed out. It was the first time we were talking about a creek. He was like, it's weird that people call it a creek, because it's really not a creek. It's it's a, its a whole river. It's a big river, too. Yeah, it um, runs quite a long ways, too. It goes all the way to Brandon, Vermont. Yes, it does, which I thought was so interesting.
0: Yeah.
1: So, uh, yeah, we set up trail cameras there. We also set one up, this is an interesting tidbit, um, this is mentioned in Small Town Monsters on the Trail of Champ series. There's this location uh, somewhere on the shores of Lake Champlain where uh, it's near private property, and the owners of that property talk about this generational story that their grandparents had about what they called the biggest beaver ever which uh, essentially what they meant was there's this large animal that moves into the marsh, and it seems to go there every spring or so. And from a distance, it just looks like the big back of a beaver. It's this big black shape. Yeah. Um, of course, in the context of Lake Champlain, the first thing you think is, oh my god, that's something seasonally coming into marshlands. Yeah. Um, we actually were able, from, from some pre-existing uh, data, which actually you very kindly were able to point out for us, We're able to pinpoint the rough location of this marsh. It isn't clear exactly which side of this marsh it's on, but we knew it was on one or the other. And uh, we happened to pick the one that is closest, right up against Artur Creek, and put a a trail camera in there to search the ground for any animal sign. Couldn't find very much. I think we had found a deer print at one point, but that was about the extent of it. And uh, we also visited um, Arnold's Bay, which is right near... Button Bay, which is where, of course, Liz von Muckenthaler got her audio recordings yeah. in two thousand four, I believe. Two thousand three. Two thousand three. Yeah. Well, and speaking of that area,
0: there was a, a relatively well documented land sighting from nineteen ninety one. This guy was on a some kind of an ATV. A guy named Todd Hustis almost ran over one as it was crossing mm. the road in front of him. So it was right. kind of like very similar to what happened to Arthur Grant at Loch Ness back in 1934.
1: Oh, the classic Loch Ness monster sighting. It's one of the yeah. most known ones, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, this was very similar.
1: Yeah, which is so interesting because the more and more you study them, the more you're like, wow, there really are like more similarities than just appearance going on here. Uh, and, you know, Arnold's Bay was such an, a fascinating area because, for one thing, it was uh, it was so much wider and deeper than you think it is. And this is my first time being at Lake Champlain ever in my life. And what I was immediately struck by, especially with the underwater footage that the divers provided, was uh, how much, like an ocean, Lake Champlain still looks under the water. It well, doesn't yeah. look like it. It looks like and the ocean. And, of course, it used amazing. to be Champlain Sea.
0: Yeah, the amazing thing is... You go back and you look at the size of the marine predecessor, the Champlain Sea, and you realize that what is Lake Champlain now was only a small fjord and this humongous ocean that was as big as all of the Great Lakes combined. Mm. Most of it was up in Quebec and Ontario. Right. Yeah, so it's mind-boggling. But you can still get out on modern-day Lake Champlain, out in the middle of it, and think you're on the ocean, it's that big,
1: it really is, especially on the New york side, which where that's where we went with you to look at the um the Bodet site, and that was like wow this is this is really looking like a coastline here it's It's pretty wide, yeah now, um Arnold's Bay was probably one of the most significant places that we actually went because. And I won't give too much away because this is kind of the the still under analysis section of our documentary. But it, it's possible that we captured some evidence while we were there of of something in the lake. Um, it's it's a bit shaky, but we're trying our best to figure out what was going on exactly. Well, you I, know,
0: help any help I can give you on that, end, by all means, just let me know absolutely.
1: I'll, I'll send the, uh, the 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 clips in question your direction, and we'll see what we can do with them. Yeah, um, or can, we can see what's in them more accurately.
0: Yeah, because I'm I sitting on, I'm sitting on all
1: of Wiz's old data, you know, which
0: I worked with her for many years, so which I've got access amazing. to all that, and I right. should be able to do something with it.
1: Which you know is one thing about you that I've absolutely found incredible. And for anybody looking to look into the Lake Champlain phenomenon, you know, this is you are probably one of the the best places to go to if you can get in touch with with you because you essentially have the Champ Library. On your computer right now, like the official champ library is there. Everything yeah, try to is... hang on to all
0: the important data, you know, or potentially important data.
1: Yeah, and, you know, that's good because so many fields uh, don't really have that. You know, uh, even like John Binnernagle, for example, who who did a lot of eyewitness interviews and just had a plethora of stuff he was sitting on. Uh, A lot of it's not accessible. We have his books and a few of his lectures on YouTube, and that's pretty much the extent of it. Um, I don't know how much of it he kept in writing or on a computer. Um, I knew that someone had edited for him, so I'm not sure if he could use a computer. Um, But yeah, you're an absolute treasure trove for that.
0: Well, you know, it's sad that so much potentially important data from Loch Ness has just vanished and, and got lost over the years.
1: Yeah, you yeah. The
0: it's... About Loch Ness, and you read about these lost pieces of evidence that could have been potentially very important, mm. that are just lost, disappeared. Whoever had them, when they died, it got thrown away. You know.
1: Yeah, it is sad. I'm
0: hoping but... we can try to. I'm trying to make an effort to avoid that over here
1: like well, especially because now that you're talking to to other researchers, they're also getting these files. So it's not just like, oh, if something happens to this computer, these are gone. It's like, no, these exist in multiple places now, um, which is yeah. which is fantastic, as far as I can tell.
0: And I've always I've always shared my data. I've never been a data hoarder, you know, mm. because yeah. I feel that you know you need to just put it all on the table and put it out there and with no secrets, everything mm. above board, In that way everybody can really sit down and analyze it, you know? Because, like sure. I said before, it's not about me. It's about the evidence and trying to figure out what's going on here.
1: That's what keeps me going, you know? Absolutely. That's, that's a really great example, I think, of how you make uh, – you, you create meaning in a life in a, in a very grand scale as well because anybody can, can chase after personal fame and keep feeding themselves with it as though it's a, a drug of some kind. Anyone can do that. Yeah. Anybody can be smarter. Yeah, to I
0: thought, you know I want people to respect me, but I want them to respect me and admire me for the right reasons. hmm you know
1: Yeah, absolutely because yeah. If, if you're not admired for the right reasons, then it really isn't ad- admiration at all. It's yeah it's gullibility is what it is what it is. Yeah. Um before we jump back into that really quick, I want to mention as far as historical data goes, I forgot to tell you this, I actually have a copy of one of the first scientific publications of Robert Rhines's photographs. The museum, the Cryptozoology Museum, was selling them for a while, like like a, a year and a half to, to two years back. And I got it as a gift from somebody who, who was with the museum. And It was actually, like, one of the original copies. Like, it still has the $1 price tag on it.
0: Is this from uh, Technology Review? You know, I think it is. Let me take
1: a quick look at the copy. I believe I have a copy. Yeah, let me see. Yes, it is. Technology Review.
0: 1976, Search for the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah, I have an original copy of it.
1: Oh, that's amazing yeah so i already have it fantastic well it's well, good I to have, have that digital, i have a digital copy too mm, always good to have those as well especially because everything's moving to the digital now
0: but hang on to that man that's extremely rare you're yeah, at- lucky
1: that's one of my my pride and joys as a researcher oh, yeah. A yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah well um I, again, I can't really talk too much about what happened at Arnold's Bay, because not because I want to hide it for publicity, but because it's it's still under review and it's kind of indefinite. Um, now, I can talk about what we had happen at Outer at Creek, because even though that's very indefinite, we actually didn't get to record any of it. So all we have is anecdotal evidence. Um, we were setting up the trail cameras. I was actually out in the biggest beaver marsh with Jeremy setting up a camera and making sure he didn't get bitten by a snake out there or anything. And uh, he was doing the same for me, obviously. And suddenly his brother, Ryan, who's our native artifact examiner, yells, uh, you know, yells for us. And we, we walk over. We figure that maybe he just got excited about something that maybe like a deer ran out or something. And then he, he screams again. And I'm like, oh, my God, that sounds kind of urgent. So I scramble up the slope over to him. And, he, and he's freaking out. And I'm like, what's up? And he's like, dude, I, I don't know what it is, but there's something in the river. And what's interesting is, before I got to him, I did hear what I thought was a splash from from a little distance away, and it sounded kind of big. And uh, he's freaking out, so I figured whatever it was was big. No, he didn't see it; he only heard it, but it was pretty big sounding, according to him. And so uh, me and Jeremy get there, and I the first thing I ask him after I ask what happened is, which direction is it going? And he and he points. And he says it's going to our left. So I start jogging to our left, and right in front of me, about 15 seconds afterwards. And They they all heard this too, and we heard another one after this, and Jeremy, who's been diving at Lake Champlain for years, uh, I think he described it as something like that sounded like someone threw a cement block into the water. It was that big and that heavy, and every time we looked at the flashlights, we could not find it, but there was something making commotion in the water, and it was definitely the sound of water because there was no heavy wind that night. There weren't any exceedingly large animals on you know, the, the bank of the river that were on land. Um, yeah. we, we could not ever find it, but it, we followed it for a few minutes because we could keep hearing it make sounds further to our left than whatever it was came back to our right. And again, Jeremy's been diving there for years. Even that earlier that day at Otter Creek, we had heard fish and seen fish jump out of the water. This was, if it was a fish, it was something bigger by about five times than what we had seen that day
0: well um, you know i've seen snapping turtles in the lake swimming around yeah. with my own eyes it was the size of garbage can lids i mean they're yeah you know, they grow
1: pretty big and that's that's a very likely answer for what was happening of course in our heads we're like oh my god is this a champ uh you know whatever a champ might be maybe a champ is a turtle who knows
2: but yeah. snapping
1: turtles definitely something that would account for to some degree, what the size of what we heard was. Why it kept coming up and down out of the water is, is kind of another question. It's yeah. funny. Actually, um, we started following it as it went to our right more and brought us along the banks where we had been setting up the trail camera that day. We actually walked by the trail camera again. And uh, we, we didn't really see anything ever, and we were kind of like, oh, well, did, did we just kind of like pay attention too much to the sounds of the river the last few minutes? Maybe we only heard a few splashes and that was that. And I wanted to find out, so I walked as far right as I could still kind of hear something. Could have just been the the waves lapping at the shore, but I wanted to find out. So I took up a big rock, and I threw it into the river, right into the mouth of the lake. And I wait for about maybe between five and seven seconds, and after the rock hits the water. So this is after the initial splash, after the splash reaches the shore, all of that. The same sound, like a cement block hitting the water, right, you know, less than, less than 20 yards to my right.
0: Well, then um, it could have been, you know, it could have been a head up in the air and then coming yeah. back down,
1: making a big yes. splash.
0: I don't know, you know, you, you couldn't see it, so it was in the dark, but that is possible. So. Yeah,
1: you know, it's it's interesting. We were looking for eyeshine, and we just couldn't find anything. We did have a scare where uh, before that, and I was following it to the right. I followed it all the way to where the bank ended. And um, we happened to find this uh, this raccoon that was over there. And from a distance, all I could see was there's an animal with eyeshine right next to the water on my right. And uh, I started freaking out for a second. And Jeremy yes. was like, oh, go around the tree, do go around the tree. And I look, and it's the raccoon. And, uh, you know, Jeremy... You know, could, Jeremy obviously was like, oh, well, it's a raccoon from the start. But I was very, uh, I definitely got caught up a bit. But that was a very interesting experience because we don't really know what that was. And at the very least, it goes to show how, uh, I suppose, no matter, what ex- no matter what angle you look at that event from, it yeah. relates to Champ somehow because either we encountered something that is bigger than anything that's supposed to be in that lake or we ourselves became an example of people who have what they think is a very strange encounter, when in reality it's something quite normal they just haven't encountered yet.
0: Yep. You got to be careful with that. Yes. It's real easy to make mistakes. Mm. And, you know, some people believe that the whole story is nothing but people making mistakes. Mm hmm and this really get in their mind. I personally don't, but some people out there do. So mm-hmm. you know. Until yeah. we have definitive until we have definitive evidence in the form of a biological specimen, it's probably always gonna be that way. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, that that really is kind of one of the big points of contention is, you know, what would it really take for scientists to start considering this seriously? And, you know, most, most people would say, well, we'll take a body. And I, I don't know that I agree with that all of the time. Because if that was completely the case, I don't think we'd have people like like John Bindernagel or Jeff Meldrum or really even Robert Rhines, who was a, a very impressive scholar long before Loch Ness. Yeah. So
0: well,
1: I, I think the way to
0: go is to find remains of one that is already dead mm. somewhere underwater or in an underwater cave or something like that, or possibly if you're lucky enough to get a small tissue sample with a biopsy dart.
1: Yeah, Either way, absolutely. it's
0: harmless to the animals, you don't mm. have to kill one, and you've got a biological specimen of something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the only thing that could possibly top that is some kind of mass sighting that several scholars happen to be present for. I yeah. think that that would be the only thing that could, that could make it happen otherwise. Because then you have maybe a hundred people, seven of them being academics, saying, yeah, we saw what was pretty undoubtedly uh, what people are calling champ.
0: Yeah, so what I'm hoping is that over the course of the next few years, we can combine our resources and get the technical technological tools that we need to get the
1: job done Mm. and just go do it you know yeah and you know i think that really is a a good method to go with because all the best evidence of something animate that we have in lake champlain comes from that kind of organized scientific effort every single piece of
0: yeah well you know like before will died God rest his soul. We had that boat and all the equipment we really needed. Mm. And we went over to where the Boatette video was filmed, and something of interest swam underneath the boat, and we got it on sonar. So that's something,
1: you know? Yeah, and that's a massively compelling image, too. It really is. Yeah. What's interesting about sonar as well is that sonar can be so... um, it can be so accurate in in depicting the shape of a thing, and yeah. when you see an object like that, you're like, "Well, it." There's no evidence that there was an exceedingly strong current that could pick up a very large object like that. It doesn't look like typical debris. It looks like a uniform shape. Yeah. What the hell are we looking at? Well, whatever it was was shaped
0: like a champ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that's what it was, but it's certainly an interesting piece of evidence.
1: Right, exactly. And again, you know, no matter what that says, that's data that suggests that what happened is indeed categorizable as the phenomenon that makes one convinced that they've seen or encountered a champ, which is exactly the kind of data that you want to encounter while you're out there, because then you have something that yeah. you can really work with and examine scientifically.
0: And one thing that's interesting is the, the Otter Creek area that you went to, it's probably not far from where Lisa Alther had her sightings back in 1980,
1: which is – Yeah, no, it's not actually. It's not that far at all. Um, I'd have to listen back to the interview that she did for Lisa the Baudette film, but I, I think she actually mentioned Otter Creek at one point, at least as a landmark, a nearby landmark. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, her sightings were, were really quite impressive because they uh, – Well, they're very consistent in minute details, which is interesting because when you're examining evidence of a new species, one of the things that really suggests that there's an actual species is it needs to resemble itself across time. And, uh, you know, when people think of a lake monster, they think green. So when you come across a fake monster account that's been hoaxed, almost every one of them says the thing was green. But when you come across ones that seem to be from people who don't have a history of that kind of personality trait— you get, well, it's this weird, like, mottled, black, kind of like a leatherback sea turtle, which no one would really think of if they weren't very well-versed in champ, um, yeah. which is exactly what your sighting described as well. And that, that was the first very thing I hit when I was talking to her was that's exactly what Scott says. It's a
0: leatherback turtle in. without the spots, but the, yeah, the sight black garbage bag color.
1: Mm. Yeah. And even uh, Christine Herbert, who had the uh, the famous dinosaur head dog sighting. She said, yep, one was uh, kind of this dark green, and one was this uh, very black, maybe very dark brown color.
0: Yeah, and there were different sizes, too. She saw two different individual animals.
1: Yes, which is always so interesting, because let's yeah. say years out from now, we somehow find out that there are animals, which who knows, maybe we will find that. Um, does that suggest a change in skin tone as they age. Is that sexual dimorphism? What are we looking at there?
0: Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. Um, interesting. So I remember you saying something about either Jeremy or Ryan or both of them hearing some clicking sounds underwater, maybe at Arnold's Bay?
1: Yes, that's that's the evidence that um, we're, we're hoping to really kind of get more uh, of an analysis into it because we... We What we know for a fact is that they heard something that, and I I hate to say I can vouch, because that seems very, not that obviously I think that they shouldn't be trusted, because they, there's no reason not to trust these two as far as I can tell, wow. they're great people. Um, but I I when Jeremy came out, he said, man, that sounds like a dolphin clicking. And I made sure to ask if there was any kind of strange, stretchy sound in between clicks, because that's what drumfish sound like. And both of them said, "Nope, not that we could tell." And uh, you know, Jeremy was kind of like, "Oh well, is it a, is it like a dolphin?" I can't. It sounds kind of different from what I remember a dolphin sounds like. So I, uh, while they were still light, I played the Liz von Muggenthal recordings for them, and uh, I I could see the hair on their arms stand up the moment they heard it.
0: Yeah, and asked that them. Yes.
1: Yeah, and and I asked them specifically. I said, "Is there?" Any difference? Like, I'm talking minute is the pitch different. Are there more spaces between the clicks? And both of them shook their head and said, I can't think of a single thing except for eventually a pitch difference. And that's it. Yeah, um, well... But, well, you know, we're got, trying to see if their cameras pick that up. Something i need to
0: tell you that I haven't told you yet is that I was able to find another set of recordings of Liz von Muggenthaler's clicks from not, from 2003. Really? Yeah, it's only a 40 second section of a video, and it's got her and the rest of her people on the boat talking in the in the foreground. But the interesting thing about this 40 minute segment is you hear more than one click. You actually hear the pattern of the clicks. Oh, that's so interesting. So like 40 seconds. Yeah, I'll send it to you when we get through. Uh, doing the show here. Yeah, please do. Yeah, I've been trying to figure out a way to remove the voices and just isolate the click sounds, and I haven't been able to figure out a filter to do it yet.
1: I will do my best to figure out something, too. I've I've been looking into sound filtering programs for for editing software so I can start editing the documentary.
0: Um, I've got lots of audio uh, software and filters, but I I can't seem to find the right one. To remove the voices and just keep the clicks. It can be, difficult. Yeah, really be very difficult. yeah,
1: that's interesting. I didn't know about that.
0: Yeah, well, I just recently found it. Um, so, tell me about your interview with Chuck Pogan. I'm sure that was inter- interesting for the. In-
1: okay. Yeah, he is. Uh, he's really interesting because he's kind of one of the biggest proponents of the turtle theory. Um, now. Which is so interesting about him because he's also very, uh, what would you say, he's very passionate about that. And he really does do this kind of very interesting process where sometimes, I should say most times, when you're looking for a specific outcome in data, you come up with falsified points in data. And of course, I'm sure that happens on Chuck Pogan's end sometimes. But occasionally, he's brought up some really good points, too. In fact, most of his points that I found are really good points. Um, Some of them being things like, oh, well, you know, we have examples of these uh, ancestors of long-necked turtles that may have been long-necked. We're not too sure yet. uh, That were, you know, roughly the size of what he will describe as champ. All the artistic recreations that we have that are of them as long-necked suggest that they probably could look like a sea serpent from certain angles. Yeah. Um, and not only that, but we now have predecessors for – or precedents, I should say, being set in Australian data for specifically long-necked turtles using forms of what might be primitive echolocation. Yes, I'm aware of this. Yeah, yeah and that alone is like, wow. No, I would have never guessed that in 100 years that we would find that in turtles. It's, well, uh, You know, there was, a, there was a time
0: maybe 15 years ago that they were trying to say – that the plesiosaurs and the Olisaropterygium were the sister group of turtles. Mm. But now that's got kind of revised, so it's not as positive as it once was, but there was a time when they were saying that turtles and plesiosaurs and their relatives were very closely related. Mm. That may still turn out to be the case, but you know, there's a lot of debate on those points.
1: It's it's true. And, you know, it's true because evolution is such an interesting factor in, in wildlife because, you know, some people would look at that and be like, well, I don't really see any similarities. And it's like, well, if you get down to just, just genetic markings, there's plenty of similarity. Um, even in just regular genetic coding makeup. I mean, if you've seen the Okapi, which is kind of one of the poster childs of cryptozoology, it's the only surviving member of the giraffe family. These things look nothing alike. The Okapi looks like a zebra more than it does a giraffe. Yet it's more closely related to a giraffe than it is a zebra. So when you look at those things, you're like, well, I, I guess they both have hooves, and it's like that's kind of all you need sometimes. So if, if plesiosaurs and turtles are related, I wouldn't be shocked at all. They're both four limbs. They're both swimmers. They both have these precedents for long necks, and they're both reptiles.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, if you if you corner a bunch of specialist paleontologists and ask them about this question, all you're going to get is them arguing for an hour back and forth. So it's really yes. up to at this point. know. Right. Yeah. Because I've attempted to, I've attempted to actually corner some of these people, and get them to say yes or no one way or the other, and it never happens. So,
1: yeah, it can be difficult to. Uh, I often find that when I talk to academics for projects or for documentaries, I just interviewed someone who uh, works at Keene State College in New Hampshire for a release of the Budette film. Actually, this guy who worked with Tiger Conservation in Nepal, um, and you know he was he was very interesting, but. He was also, uh, there, there was, as far as I could tell, not a lot of room for champ specific questions in there, which, you know, is is up to him, but is also kind of, uh, an example of, like, you know, bringing this full circle to the beginning of this, of this interview, um, something that's so interesting about cryptozoology, which is that it's so, uh, academically untouchable right now, and thankfully, we're kind of starting to see that change a bit, um, and, and hopefully it continues to change because, well, I suppose because the, the idea that we've explored everything and that we know everything about wildlife is rapidly being proven to be untrue time and time again. Yeah. And all the discoveries that we're making, you know, this, this kind of stuff might be right around the corner, these big new discoveries. And it might be only a matter of time until we find the next giant panda, or the next Okapi, or the next et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, well, you know, if we can ever have a breakthrough with one of these classic cases like Bigfoot, or the Loch Ness Monster, or Champ, or one of these, if we can have a success with one of them, that's going to open the floodgates for the rest of it.
1: Mm. Yes, I absolutely
0: agree. know, it will legitimize at least one of the cryptids that people have been looking for for 60, 90 years, you know? And then will be able to say, See, look, this
1: one was real over here. Maybe these other ones are real, too. Yeah, and, and and I wonder how much of that will be gradual, too, because one thing that's gaining a lot more academic attention recently are thylacine sightings. And, yeah. uh, you know, those were laughed at 10 years ago. That's not really the case anymore. This is being taken more seriously now. Um and the reason being is is mainly mounting photographic evidence, um, and you know maybe that's different with things like Champion Bigfoot because we have uh, in our data certain examples of alleged photographic evidence that are withstanding the test of time. Doesn't mean that they're true, but it means that we haven't been able to prove them false yet. Yeah, um, which is in itself pretty damn significant as far as scientific inquiry goes. That's nothing yeah. to be laughed at. Um, so maybe we'll see as things with the Silurian get more serious. Perhaps scientific inquiry will start to wonder. Well, I mean, if we're if we're missing, you know, relatively large mammals. They're not big, you know, huge mammals, but they're relatively large predators. Um, if we're missing those in Australia, what the hell else are we missing? Yeah, this isn't well, the Congo, you know, rainforest. This is you know, on the outskirts of towns in Australia that we miss these things, if they are real. Regarding um, the Bodette video, hmm. what you
0: were able to put together, do you feel like you've made any significant headway toward quantifying what is in the
1: video? You know, I really think we have, actually. And part of it is I'm very much in the sense of, uh, especially in the scope, I would I should say, of Crash Course Cryptozoology as a program, Um, I'm very much about public education. I think that the availability of scientific data is one of the most fundamentally important things that you can do with scientific data, is make it available to everybody to see. And the thing about the Baudette footage is, is that it's one of the best pieces of evidence we have to suggest that what's happening at Lake Champlain is, in fact, zoological in nature. Now, The thing also about it is that's also one of the most under-examined by the mainstream public, you could say. Um, People who are very in the know about Champ, like you, or like Alexander Petikov, have seen the parts of it that you can see because it's being, you know, it's obviously being, it's kind of being held hostage right now, essentially. Um, And you know about it, but people in general don't know about it. Even people who have examined what they can examine and then published in some way online their findings, those pieces of evidence don't tend to come very far, nowhere near as far as stuff like the Mansi photograph or even the Olsen video, even yeah. though it's arguably better than both of those in some respects. And it might be, might prove to be better if we do find out that this thing can get released. Um. Now, so what I think, that, what I mean to say by all this is I think that, we have made a lot of headway in this project merely by taking all of that information into one source and looking at the door that might be the door for it to become mainstream knowledge, and we're shoving all of it into that doorway. Is what yeah. we're doing.
0: And one thing um, I'm particularly happy that I was able to contribute. Is I was able to bring William Dragunis's testimony. Into the equation,
1: yes, which is, I think is very important because, as far okay. as I can tell, from people who met William while he was still alive—may he rest in peace—he uh, he was not a discredited person. He was a very well-respected researcher. Oh, absolutely,
0: who, his his reputation in the Bigfoot field completely eclipsed his reputation in the Champ field. Highly
1: respected
0: as a Bigfoot researcher,
1: right. Which is so interesting because you don't see that all the time. That's one thing that was, again, really cool about William was that he was uh, another person who you could say was very well-versed in cryptozoology.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, and I mean, his testimony is, uh, you know, it's it's just as interesting as the, the the testimony of people who have examined parts of the photos that are publicly available. Um and there's so many different aspects that you can look at in just that small bit of film. There really is. Yeah. And um, what's so interesting is that um, there was uh, occasionally cited for, for information on the film is what Bodet and Alphator said about the footage. Um, and it's hard to find that now, but you can still track it down. There's this older yeah. interview with them that's, that's in a transcript, typed, and you can look at it, and they give a pretty interesting analysis of the film. And what's great, especially, is that certain parts that they talk about that happen in their event, or at least their recollection of the event, William Dranguinis recounts happening when he watched the footage. Yeah. Um, Which is interesting, because then you have a correlation in scientific data. Okay, stories are matching up here. William's not mixing this up, and they said this before William... Was able to see this footage, so they weren't looking at William's account and saying, "Oh yeah, this and that happened." Like, no, this is coincident. It's
0: two independent accounts.
1: Yes, of the same events, same
0: observations.
1: But the observations were uh, unaware of each other, which is yeah. There's no way that those two things were uh, were merely coincidental. Then. And you, and you can do math for that, which is interesting. I recently did a, uh, well, I should say, Crash Course Cryptozoology, Recent did a uh, a video on this alleged uh, dog man photograph from from Michigan that was t- that, I saw got- that yeah and I decided while I was looking at it I was like well you know sometimes you come across fakes where people are like well just because it looks like another image doesn't mean that it is photoshopped from that image and I was like okay fine is there a way you can scientifically conclude whether or not this is the image it came from, without the use of things like metadata, which not everyone has access to looking at. And I realized that there was. And the formula that I came up with was, well, okay, so let's look at the rate that images are popping up on the internet, right? Um, from the time the internet was created to about 2020. And we're in the middle of it. So it's kind of roughly this. There's around 19,000 billion images on the internet right now, roughly that. And you can you can do the mapping of adding that up very easily. And so what you have to do then is you have to look at, okay, well let's let's plug in a probability formula. What is the probability that this particular uh, the onway photograph, which is the dogman photograph, and this image of a stuffed timber wolf are are pixel for pixel alike, but are not the same image. And doing that, you actually get a negative outcome. So it's literally mathematically impossible. So you can actually do scientific analysis on whether or not these things are coincidental. And as far as I can tell, the same thing would probably apply for this event where Bodette and uh, Drank Guinness described the same thing in the footage without knowing of each other's descriptions. It's the same thing. It's it's probably a negative outcome. It's not possible, or at least it's very unlikely.
0: Yeah, I I follow you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: So, you think you're going to have this
1: finished by Christmas? That's what I'm shooting for. We're actually a bit shaky on editing resources right now. I'm currently attending university, and um, the editing software, unlike my last university, actually isn't publicly available. You have to meet certain requirements. And I'm not too sure whether I meet all of those or not. So I'm I'm contacting the lab right now and uh, waiting to hear back from them currently. So we'll see. Hopefully I can. But if not, I can always just work my ass off in December to get it edited. (laughs)
0: Best of luck. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm honored to have been a participant in it, and any additional help I can give you to make it
1: as good as possible, please let me know. Well, you know, you've been a really fantastic help so far. You've again you're an absolute you're the library of Alexandria of Champ Knowledge. And I I I was able to to talk to you about information that is quite literally available nowhere else. And for anybody looking to make a film on Champ, uh, who can who can get into contact with you, I highly recommend they do because you're an absolutely treasure. You're a treasure trove of knowledge, and that's something that this field needs pretty desperately right now.
0: Well, I must acknowledge the people that came before me, mm. people like Joe Zarzanski, and uh, even though I'm critical of some of his work, Dennis Hall. Mm. And there was Leon Dean at the University of Vermont, Professor Phil Rains at the University of Plattsburgh. You know, there were people that were doing this research before me, and I built on the database that they put together first. So,
1: Yeah, you know, it's the ultimate rule of discovery is we stand upon the shoulders of giants. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. That's it. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. uh, so,
0: you also have done some dabbling in the parapsychology field as well, right?
1: A tiny bit, yeah. I, I, I've done my best to uh, to study not just the, the psychological effect of things and the power of belief, but also the accounts that you could attribute to the power of belief that are still kind of wonky. Um, I'm actually… Working on a second documentary right now that I've mentioned on the Out of the Shadows podcast. It's a, a documentary on Puckwudgie sightings, which I suppose you could describe Puckwudgies as kind of a North American version of like a fae creature. I suppose in in it's like a little person story. Wow! Um, but there are plenty of these very strange modern sightings uh, that. Half of them are are kind of supernaturally oriented, and the other half that describe the exact same looking creature are saying, no, these things behave like they're like, like they're real like primates. I'm talking to a particular witness who wrote a book on his experiences right now. Granted, he has a lot of alleged experiences, and that's a bit suspicious, but um his experiences are all very physically grounded. He insists up and down, these things are not supernatural, they're physical, they behave like You'd expect a troop of primates out in the woods to behave, and yeah. on the other end, you have things that are that are kind of weird. And the, the cool thing about things that are kind of weird is, I do think it depends greatly on the power of belief in the scenario. I actually conducted a scientific experiment almost around a year ago now, back in December of 2019. Uh, there's a there's a video on the Crash Course group as well YouTube channel called an experiment in gullibility. So what happened was I had found – actually, more accurately, I had been shown this image of a female gorilla in her enclosure. Her enclosure happened to be during uh, – it was in the middle of winter when this photograph was taken, so all of the grass was barren, the trees were barren, and it was just a rocky slope with snow on it essentially. And it looked a hell of a lot like a, like a Yeti photo, and that was kind of funny, but then I was like, hey, this this can actually be used. So I edited the photo a bit to make it look more natural. There was no enclosure door in the photo now. And just put the caption, an honest photographer claims this was a Yeti sitting on the board of Nepal and Tibet in 2012. Put it up on a website called Reddit. It's the largest forum website on the internet. It's the widest net you can possibly throw. Put it on a cryptozoology forum. Put it on several cryptozoology forums. And I tracked not only how many people were seeing it, but I tracked how many likes versus dislikes it was getting. And I tracked what kind of comments, positive, or I should say affirming or denying, were being left. The first, I think, four hours or so, you have a constant rise of upvotes and a constant rise of views and a constant rise of affirming, oh, this is such a cool Yeti photograph comments. Then, around that same hour, you get one or two denying comments saying, this looks fake, this looks like it's photoshopped, and there was even one saying, I know where the original image is, I've seen this, here's a link to it. As that happened, and you can see it on the grass in this video, there's actually a crisscross section where the amount of likes instantly goes down the minute that happens, and the amount of affirming comments instantly goes down the moment that happens. And for the rest of it, it's a rise and then steady flat line for the rest of the 24-hour period that this was up of denying comments, dislikes, and a drop in attention. So what does that say? Well, for one thing, it says that people who are quick to jump to conclusions might be – well, they they might be lesser in number than we thought they were because not only was the rise in people who were realizing this was a hoax rather sudden as soon as it started happening, which suggests that that kind of thing is something people actually do pay attention to, let alone online instead of the real world, but it's actually – More in amount and is more sustainable over time than people who jump to conclusions. So people aren't as gullible as we tend to think that they are. Um, That being said, you have to kind of take that kind of thing into account when you're looking at a sighting, because people can be quick to jump to conclusions. But when you have people... Multiple people describing kind of the same behavior in the same thing, especially when it's in specific details, like some of these publisher reports are, you have to at least be willing to entertain that something is actually going on. Because people aren't always so gullible as we tend to think that they are, and especially if their reports are resembling each other, they're probably not gullible because they're describing things similar to people that they don't, don't even realize exist. Um, which is kind of the parapsychology element of that, which is like, well, is there actually a weird thing going on or is it people's heads? I don't know how likely it is that a weird thing is going on, but it's certainly not as likely as we think that it's all in people's heads. According to 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 data. It's it's not as likely to be there as we think it is sometimes.
0: Yeah, well there's you know, touching on the statistics that you were quoting about <clears throat> the dogman photo. Mm. There's been meta analysis done on parapsychology data regarding psychic phenomena. And the metadata analysis of that says the likelihood that all these positive hits on uh, ESP tests, the data is so far into the positive that statistically it would be impossible for it to all be chance. Mm. So that metadata analysis is the best positive evidence there is for side phenomena.
1: Exactly. Yeah, so very and that is the what psi you were talking about earlier. Right. Yeah, which is such a good way to examine that because then what you what you do is you kind of recontextualize the issue because of course your first or I should say maybe someone's first me jer- reacting to this, oh, so you're saying the psychic is real? And you're like, well, not necessarily. I'm, it, the, the data suggests that there is a phenomenon taking place.
0: Yeah. It there's no adjective it. it just says that the phenomenon is real.
1: Yes, whatever it is, we don't know. Maybe this is something psychological. Maybe there's a psychological problem with looking at data that we haven't discovered yet. Maybe we're the problem in the data, but there's yeah. some kind of phenomenon that we don't know about here. We've been able to isolate that with scientific data, which is the most important thing that we have to do as cryptozoologists. Yeah. Exactly. You know, the, it's, more, it's,
0: the more we can rely on mathematics and hard data, the better off we are. You know?
1: Yeah, I would absolutely agree, because, well, I, I suppose because for one thing, if we want anyone to take cryptozoology seriously, we have to be willing to – and this isn't like a play-by-sciences-rules kind of thing either because that that would suggest that there are several rules that you can play by and have an accurate outcome, which is not the case. Uh, it, it seems like people like to think that, oh, well, scientists don't take it seriously, so I shouldn't be scientific. It's like, well, well no, just because people who are people don't take it seriously – doesn't mean, therefore, that science has failed us somehow. In fact, it probably means that we need to try even harder to not fail science.
0: Yeah, yeah. Even if they have rejected our data, if we can figure out a way, in spite of that, to use the methods of science to quantify our data and then go back to these people and say, look, this is what we got, it might
1: open the door. Hmm. Yeah, you know, exactly. And that's kind of interesting in the sense, that's what's so great about the champ phenomenon, to me, is that out of all the cryptozoological subjects, maybe aside from Bigfoot and, like, the Yeti, champ has got the most scientific data to back up the reports. It really does. It's got several different sonar hits of animate objects across time that are too big to be species that we know for a fact exist in the lake, we have echolocations, which are definitely real echolocations, which I mean, let's talk about that alone. Let's throw all the other data out. That's incredible. That is you know, that's either, we either have a species that we know about in this lake that we somehow did not know was echolocating for hundreds of years of living along this lake putting hydrophones in this lake and only getting this a few times. Somehow we did not find that. Or we have some kind of rare species in the lake that we weren't hearing that much before, not just because hydrophones are still relatively recent, but because, because they're rare, they're not echolocating all the time. Yeah. It's, it's one of those two things. It's, it, there is no mistake in this data. This is echolocation. This is, ab- this is peer-reviewed absolute echolocation, which is well, the most significant thing.
0: What makes it echolocation is the fact that on Liz's sonograph readout of the 2003 recordings is that a portion of the sound went up past the range of human hearing into the range of 140 kilohertz. Yes. And the only sounds known in the animal kingdom that go up that high are from... Active biosonar animals like microbats and 212s. Yes. So that's why she thought that this was echolocation because of that high frequency 140 kilohertz range that is not audible to the human ear on the audio recording, but is recorded on the sonograph that records the whole sonic range, either below or above the range of human hearing. That's Mm. what makes it echolocation.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's incredible. That's, that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's the most underrated discovery, at least in zoology, of the 21st century so far. It's the only thing in the science
0: literature related to champ that is positive toward the existence of something Unknown in the lake, mm. and I was lucky enough to be a co-author on that abstract. I'm hoping someday to do the full paper. There's several draft versions, but without Liz's participation or blessing, I'm kind of in limbo. So I'm waiting to see what happens with her. You know,
1: yeah, it makes it rather difficult that she's that sees at the very least dropped out of the field. You know, I understand that we don't know where she is right now, and hopefully she's fine. Yeah. Um, I hope so too. Yeah, and th- that I've made every cool.
0: I've made every effort I could to find out what the situation is, and have had no luck so far. But I'm going to keep yeah. trying.
1: Well, you know, when I interviewed Ruby Anderson for *Forblessed* the a film, who's a champ researcher who's been, I think, what twenty, twenty-five years now in the field, something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, who who you worked with personally? Yeah. She said the same thing. She was like, "Yeah, you know, I've tried contacting her up and down, and I've got nothing." Um, which is which is disappointing because she actually discusses. The fact that Liz got the chance to see the Baudette film, and yep. unfortunately didn't give much description to her. But uh, one thing that Ruby said that was quite interesting was Liz never detailed what she saw. But the day that she came back from seeing it, she looked at me dead in the eyes and said, "It's the real deal," you know, no yep. joke. And she was adamant. Um, so she well, saw something that impressed her. More or less,
0: told me the same thing. You know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's it's, it's disappointing that. She's uh, she's dropped out of this race because you know that could be some very pertinent information. Um, we'll see what happens. You know, we will. You know, this this kind of search is far from over. Even if we find a dead champ tomorrow, whatever champs are, uh, you know, that's that's kind of just the end of stage one of learning about champ is learning that it exists. Yeah, um, there's plenty. There's there's decades, probably centuries, of champ research to happen after that.
0: Well, I'm hoping we can we can make some major contributions over the next few years.
1: I'm hoping as well. You know, forming the LCZI was uh, I think a really great idea because I think that especially with the state of cryptozoology, a lot of these things are are kind of disbanded. But and this is what I love about the the people who are kind of new coming into the field right now is a lot of them have this mindset of like, all right, let's get everyone we can together and just figure this out. Let's just try this. Uh, Nash Hoover's like that. Alexander's yeah. like that. I try my best to be like that. You're obviously like that. And it's a great thing to be able to do that because now we can actually get objective people together to conduct objective analysis and produce what is, at at the very least, the closest thing to accurate data that we possibly can get. And if it's inaccurate, fine. We can whittle it down a bit and, and be a bit more general and be as accurate that way. But we're getting results so far that way. We're finding interesting things that way. And the LCZI is all about that.
0: I just want to follow the evidence to wherever it leads, you know, and wherever it leads, that's
1: the answer, you know. Yeah, exactly. Even as somebody who is, you know, convinced of the notion that I've had what you would call a Sasquatch encounter, um, I, I would accept it. If you somehow were to show me proof tomorrow that I did not see a new animal, and if it was proof positive, I would accept it and ask the question, okay, how the hell did I mistake that for a giant ape? (laughs) Yeah. And that that then becomes the new question, and that's just as interesting a question as how the hell is there a species of ape that we don't know about?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What leads to these beliefs if these animals aren't real? You know, That's just as compelling—
1: is the existence of a new animal? Yeah, you know that was one thing that was that was great about this documentary that uh, my my ex my ex colleague Nate Grislin, had produced a few years ago. Well, actually, not a few years ago. Uh, we released it just about a year ago. It's called Pine State Phantoms, and it's about this kind of weird cryptozoological slash paranormal activity at a place in Maine. And what was so interesting is he interviews this cultural anthropologist, and one of the things that she talks about is hey, every culture believes in this kind of thing to some degree. Like, every culture has a story of the wild man, or of lake monsters, or of ghosts, etc., etc. Doesn't mean they actually exist, but there is a shared idea. There's a shared idea, whether it's based on the physical world or something more metaphorical. But there's a shared idea, and that's what we're trying to study. Why is there a shared idea? Is it zoological? Is it physical? Or is it cultural? Doesn't matter what it is, because it's something. We want to
0: find out what it is, put it in a box, and say, this is what it is.
1: Yeah, exactly. We want want to be able to leave that case uh, as solved as we could possibly solve it. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: So many of my my trips, when I go to Lake Champlain, I go up there for like a month or six weeks, and I'm only able to get – significant things accomplished in spurts Mm. because I need help getting around or I need this or I need that, Right. hoping maybe between the four of us, we can work together to streamline this to where we can just go up there for a couple of weeks and boom, 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 go to the places we need to do to go and get the stuff done Mm. and get it over with without sitting around wasting a bunch of dead time, you know?
1: Well, absolutely, yeah. That's one reason that I found myself investing in an RV in the next two years. Not only because that's kind of been a dream of mine, just personally, to be able to travel around a bit like that, but because, hey, I don't have to worry about hotel money now. I can, yeah, I can uh, easily and, make room and for and people you know, in an RV.
0: You saw how difficult it is getting around the physical
1: geography of
0: Lake Champlain. in such a big yes. lake. You know, absolutely. so that's, that's one problem you're constantly working against. It's just getting back and forth across the lake and getting around
1: it, you know? Mm. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. Again, you know, you, uh, you under, I feel like I, as well as other people, always undermine how really big and complex the geography of the world is. You think of Lake Champlain, you're like, oh, it's a tiny dot on the U.S. map. There's no, there's no way an animal species can live in here. And then you get there and you're like, holy shit. No, there, there could be something. There could look, be at something. All the,
0: look at all the bouncing around we did that day.
1: Yeah, that last day was pretty incredible. We made some record time doing that.
0: Yeah, well, lucky for me, I knew how to get around, you know?
1: Yeah, you know, you were. It would've
0: would've took a long and way around, it took half a forever.
1: Mm, yeah, it did, but you know what? It was worth it because we got yeah. to see some interesting locations.
0: Yeah. Man. Well, hopefully, next, next year we'll have more
1: time. Yeah, I hope so as well, especially if we plan on maybe a bit earlier in the summer at some point. That would be fantastic. You know, that would be awesome. Yep. Whatever works. Yeah, whatever works. Whatever works. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Well,
0: it's been an interesting conversation, and thank you for coming on. Hey,
1: of course, Scott. I'm honored to have been on. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Yeah, well... I appreciate it, and uh, I'm sure you'll be back at some point, and we'll be hopefully at Lake Champlain sometime next year. So, Yeah, yeah. I hope so as well. Yep. So let's fight the good fight. All righty. Okay, man. I'll talk to you
1: later. Talk to you later, Scott. Thank you for having me on.
0: Yep, thank you. We're back for the second half of our special Halloween Haunted Sea episode. We previously talked to uh, <clears throat> Carrick St. Laurent, who is one of the co-founders of the new Lake Champlain Zoological Inquiry Organization that we put together. And now we're going to talk to another member, Jeremy Sanborn. Hello, Jeremy.
2: Hey, Scott. How's it going?
0: Good. Good to talk to you. Um So, do you want to tell us how you got into diving and cryptozoology? Was it was it cryptozoology first, or was it diving first?
2: It was cryptozoology first. I went and um, my dad was always into uh, you know Sasquatch and stuff like that. And I remember he had a bookcase, and I it was right at my level when I was a kid, probably about seven years old. And I'd be looking at these books, and you know check on the Loch Ness Monster, Sasquatch, you know, and, uh, I remember one of the books, it was a Reader's Digest, Mysteries of the Unexplained, it was a big blue book, and it had, you know, all the Robert Ryan's, um, photographs in it and stuff, and so that right there, being a kid, I already loved dinosaurs and stuff, so there's a living dinosaur, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, and then, when I was, uh, I was 15, and my dad was already scuba certified and stuff, so, uh, I went and I decided to get certified, and so I got certified when I was 15, so back in 1997.
0: All right, so we should tell people you're based in Massachusetts, right? Yes, sir. How far from Boston?
2: About 45 minutes.
0: Well, that's not too bad. You got anything you want right there in a big city if you need it.
2: Yeah, I kind of like staying away from the big cities, though.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, um, my path into cryptozoology was very similar to yours. I started out as a dinosaur, not as a kid. Oh, yeah. And then found out about the Loch Ness Monster and the speculation that it was a plesiosaur, and I was immediately hooked.
2: Oh, yeah. Same here. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So, you're talking about the Ryan's pictures. I can remember when that was brand new, when that was happening. I was about, I would
2: have been 11. Yeah, it was like, what, 75 or something?
0: 75, 76, yeah. yeah. So, I get hit. I got hit by the double whammy of the Ryan's Loch Ness pictures and Jaws. Yeah. The movie. <laughs> my, so, my you know, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't really get serious about it until I was around 30. I pursued a career in music, you know, and so I was kind of a light bloomer, you know?
2: Yeah, I hear so you. So
0: sometimes these things, you know, you don't know what you want to do in life and you stumble around for years and years and then finally you figure out what you want to do, you know? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. just life, you know?
2: Yeah, that it is. I, I mean, yeah, I'm 38 now and, you know, I wish I, when I was a little kid, I knew that cryptozoology was actually going to take off the way it did you know, in the last decade or so, I would have gone and pursued some type of uh, science, like maybe paleontology or marine yeah. biology or something, you know? Yeah. But I went and I mucked around, was, you know, your, ad- your average kid getting in a little trouble here and there, you know? <laughs> but... Yeah. So um, we met when you were working with somebody else. Yes.
0: Who we will we'll just not even talk about on this program as much as we can avoid it. Sounds but, you know, we we kind of came together during the filming of um, the Small Town Monsters miniseries On the Trail of Champ yep. by Alexander Petikoff. It's yep. the first time we really got to, to meet each other and talk with each other. And then, as, as, as things would progress, you had a break with the other person you were working with and decided to come work with me and William
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then unfortunately William got sick and died
2: yeah very unfortunately
0: but we finally got to, to get this together this last champ trip
1: yeah about a we month
0: did. ago you know and it was really cool yeah we didn't have a whole lot of time but we did
2: yeah time we is
0: always to hop all over the top half of Lake Champlain and hit all the greatest hits places
2: yeah yeah we did
0: yeah so you want to talk about some of that? Why don't you, why don't you fill me and everyone else in about what happened the first day with the three of you there when I wasn't there, about what all happened?
2: Hey, well, the first day, you know, we got up there and I uh, went and rented gear because it's just easier to rent gear from places that you know have dive shops near the water than trudge it all the way up there myself, and um. So we ended up doing that, but we went to the, uh, went to the lake and nothing really happened the first day. It was actually the second day that, uh, some strange things happened Some, and, you know, it was unbelievable. Um, so the first day kind of went without a hitch, you know, I was just getting used to the gear and, uh, my new camera, stuff like that. Uh, my brother, Ryan was in the water with me and, uh, he was using a camera. It was just a kind of cheap camera but it actually took good pictures and uh he was free dive was snorkeling and um so the second day we went back to the same area it's a bay and uh i went and um we were planning on going and diving the uh, sable the next day with you so i wanted to make sure all my gear was all you know proper and set up right so i didn't bring my camera in the water with me because i didn't want to have to fumble with that and the gear well i get in the water the gear was fine uh, swimming around and it's starting to get dark and uh, you know, I'm down on the bottom well a couple of feet off the bottom just gliding around checking things out and it's starting to get dark and all of a sudden start hearing this uh, clicking and I thought it was in my head at first like a bubble in my ear or something and I'm looking around and Ryan, my brother, said that the day prior that he heard something, some clicks or something like that that were weird but uh, I didn't hear him so but I went and I was looking around and I look up at him and he's tapping his ears so he's telling me that he's hearing it too and um, oh it was awesome yeah uh, whatever we were in a bay it was just getting dark so you know people were leaving and stuff and whatever this was was it was out in the lake projecting these sounds into this bay you know we could uh, you know, decisively tell the direction that these were coming from. They were coming from outside the bay, coming in. And they were very subtle clicks, and then a loud click, and subtle clicks, and then they'd, they'd pick up a little bit in rhythm. And, you know, it was just, it sounded like, you know, echolocation. Exactly like echolocation. It didn't sound like, you know, like a... Burp, 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 like some recordings are, you know, and... Yeah. Stuff like that. This was like.
0: Did it sound? Did it sound like the the racket a fishing rod makes when you're reeling the reel in?
2: Because echolocation can kind of sound like that. The clicks. Uh, I I know I know what you mean of, yeah, but this of a fishing was fishing Yeah, but no, this was just this is just weird. And I uh, I actually went and um because my scuba. You know, when you breathe in, it makes a sound, and then your exhaust bubbles make a sound when it comes out the regulator. So I actually took the my BC and tank off and inflated it and just floated it and pushed it towards shore, so I could just use my snorkel and just float there and listen to this without uh, any noise. You know.
1: Yeah.
2: And uh, it went on for I only I mean, we were in the water probably for like forty minutes, and it was dark by the time we left. But uh, we went and uh, actually started swimming out towards the lake, and the sounds got. Significantly louder only for about a five second period and um, Then it stopped and went back to his it didn't really have a rhythm per se or anything on But my immediate thought was you know, you go to the aquarium you you know, you see dolphins and whales You know blue and stuff like that and you hear that clicking the echolocation I've never I've been in so many lakes in my life and I've dove in the ocean up here down in Florida you know, I have never heard anything like that in my life. What well, a my-
0: significant thing, sounds like to me, is that you didn't see any obvious source that was around. You could see visually where it would be coming from.
2: Yeah, and no, you know, it's...
0: One of the hallmarks of cetacean echolocation.
2: Exactly. Is that and- it
0: travels far in the water, so the source could be far, far away from where you guys were at. Yeah, and you could still hear it pretty clear.
2: Yeah, what what uh, me and my brother were thinking uh, you know, it was starting to get dark, right? So maybe this animal knows that when it gets dark, the human activity dies down, and uh, maybe being a nocturnal hunter, it went and it was you know doing a tech echolocation into this little bay. You know, it's much easier to go and find things in a bay, like corral them in a bay, fish. Yeah. Then chase them around the, the whole lake. You know. So, yeah. I, think, I think that's what it was doing, you know. So I'd like to go and uh, definitely do some more research on that, you know, be in the water when it's getting dark. Yeah. Uh, you
0: definitely. see, echolocation is a way for an animal to see in the dark.
2: Exactly, yes. Not
0: visually. They send these, these focused echolocation clicks out, and it bounces up an object, comes back to their brain, and the brain... As near as I can understand it, the brain of the, the whale makes a three dimensional image
2: mm-hmm.
0: of the object based on the parameters of the sounds that have come back. So it's yeah. a way for an animal to see in the dark.
2: Yeah, it's uh it's absolutely amazing. It's the the best sonar ever invented, man made or nature god. You know, it's just it's unbelievable in uh
0: well, yeah, they can't get a computer to act like a brain. No. They're not there yet. So not there yet. nature's design of sonar is almost certainly better than anything that we can build at this point artificially. Yep. Yeah. Yep.
2: And, you know, the, the Navy and stuff is pretty advanced, but yeah. I don't know. I think the cet- cetaceans and dolphins and stuff got them beat. And yeah. I've gone... Now when I when I get out of the water finally after all this, you know, cuz me and my brother we just literally floated there for till it was past dark and this thing was still going. And um we went it ended up getting out and uh crack he was on on shore and he was uh you know I think he was filming us the whole time. I don't I'm not sure what he was doing at that point, but uh he wanted to get me, you know, right when I came out of the water, so uh, he caught me right when I was getting out, you know, in my wetsuit and everything, he asked me to explain what I heard, and, you know, I was wicked excited because, like I said, I've never heard this before in my life anywhere, any body of water, and I know what it sounded like, and uh, I told him, you know, it, was, it, it sounded like, yeah, I told him that at the, then, a dolphin, you know, when you go to an aquarium, you hear a dolphin, but I've gone and since listened to a lot of different echolocation from, you know, porpoises, dolphins, and stuff like that, whales, and it doesn't match a dolphin, it, 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 so that that was just you know my interpretation on the spot. You know. Well, you know,
0: to, I have I have Liz's original sounds,
2: and I'm going to say something.
0: Three, I can send those to you and Ryan and get your opinion on those.
2: I I can already give you my opinion on that. <laughs> um, uh, Karak when he had them right there on his computer, and uh, after we get out of the water and stuff, and you know he played something, and you know. It, at first, there was some type of echolocation, but it didn't sound like we heard. It sounded—I don't know what it was—and then all of a sudden, Lisbon Muggenfallers came on, and I almost shit my pants. Well, I almost crap my pants. Um, that's the closest to anything that I can say. I've gone and I've listened to, you know, river dolphins. You know, five species of river dolphins. I listened to them. Um, bottlenose, you know. I've listened to pilot whales, false killer whales, belugas, and the closest thing that I can relate it to is what Liz has recorded. Yeah, because it's, it's not definitely a beluga whale. It's not definitely this. It's it's something different. And it yeah. was really cool. I mean, it was the, the clicks were nice and subtle, and then it sounded almost like a rock clack, you know, underwater. Yeah, it, every, every once in a little while, and then it would pick up in cadence, and you know, but it, it went on for a long time. It was awesome.:
0: Yeah, well, the last time I heard clicks that sounded like Liz's sounds were in 2017 when me and Will were over at the Budettes site yep the mouth of the Isles Sable River after dark, and we recorded some too. I'll, I'll have to let you hear those too. Well they're yeah. in the they're in the um, the small town monsters thing in the documentary. Yeah, I can, I, th- I can dig them out and send them to you again.
2: Yeah, definitely, because I'd like to hear them. Because, um, but
0: you know, you know, besides the plesiosaur theory, there's also the Bacillosaurus theory, and the idea is is that they know that Bacillosaurus itself did not lead to the main line of of well evolution. It's no smaller. It's smaller, shorter relatives did. Yep. So if some kind of Basilosaurus has managed to survive up to the modern day, it may have taken its own evolutionary route, and its echolocation might sound significantly different from the whales that we know that are descended from a different lineage.
2: Yes. I don't true. know.
0: Nobody, I don't know either. Else, nobody knows.
2: Yeah, that's the mystery. That's what we're trying yeah. to find out, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So. So, tell me about going down to Christine and Charlie's.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love those guys. Um,
0: Yeah, me too. I've known them for a quarter of a century.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they're good people. I've been there before, but, you know, this time, uh, you know, I talked to Charlie more in the past, and uh, I got to talk to Christine more this time, and, yeah, she's she's an awesome lady. She's a sweetheart, and she'll tell you her experience, you know, right there, and you you can tell uh, when she's talking, you know. She could be doing totally something else, and then when she starts talking about this, she goes and just—you can tell—you know—it affected her. Like uh, she definitely oh, saw absolutely.
0: this. Absolutely, yeah.
2: You I know? mean,
0: she's, she's ninety years old and he's eighty-eight, but they're still sharp as a
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they still—they're still going at it. You know, yeah. working all day and.
0: That place has been open since 1929. Their parents opened it. Yeah,
2: so it's,
0: it's an institution. It's been there, ninety years.
2: Yeah, I, I, hope it, Amazing. I hope it's there another 90 more somehow. But Me too, yeah. But uh, yeah, she was saying, you know, back then, the whole like, parking area and stuff was all flooded. You know, it was all like a swamp, kind of. Yeah. Like all water, and that's where they came out of. But she saw, what, one? And then she saw two another night, I think it was?
0: There was like three weeks between her sightings.
2: Yeah. Two sightings, and she
0: saw one that was a greenish-yellow color, and then she yep. saw another one three weeks later that was smaller and was a brown color. Mm-hmm. So, obviously it was two different individuals.
2: Exactly, yep.
0: And she, she got the same description of this long neck and head standing up out of the water. She said it was like a dinosaur.
2: Exactly, that's what I was just going to say. Her description and her, she mentions the head a lot, and it looked like a dinosaur. It, it right. was a dinosaur, you know. From what... She tells me, I picture a dinosaur. Yeah. So I picture... I picture the
0: lines of a sauropod dinosaur or a plesiosaur.
2: Plesiosaur, yes, exactly. She
0: couldn't see the appendages, so she don't know if it had flippers or what, but she saw one hump and a neck and a head. Yeah. She made a sketch for me. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I have it. Back in 1995, she
2: made me a sketch. Um, I don't know if I've seen it.
0: Oh, yeah. It, it looks exactly like what she's describing. Yeah, you can... Could... will send it to you
2: awesome yeah Uh, put it in the slideshow yeah she's a she's a great lady and charlie you know he's he's out there trying to get people he uh telling kids how to row the boats and stuff (laughs) and he's out there yelling at them and uh it's funny because when i rented a boat from him and i've been rowing boats for years he went and started telling me how to row the boat and stuff and you know where to put my feet and i just i just listened to him you know i didn't you know say anything back to him but it was funny so but uh yeah, while he was doing that, Christine was uh, doing an interview for Crack. Uh, my brother and I, and um, I got a copy of that. So does Crack. I think my brother might too. But um, yeah, they're great people.
0: Yeah. Well, I think this is going to shape shaping up to be a really good documentary, and I can't wait to see the finished product.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I mean, I I really wish I was able to get some more diving in. To be honest with you, because I only got to go those two days with the uh, tank. I didn't get to go anywhere really significant, although I did. We did have that weird encounter with whatever that was making those sounds. Yeah. um, You know, I was hoping that over at the Sable, it was going to be deep. And uh, we got there and uh, we literally had to belly crawl like, you know, crocodile crawl probably 150 yards before we were able to get up to any significant depth. (laughs)
0: so well the reason why is the water level's been really low yeah the last five or six years and the reason why there's not been a lot of snow yep in the winter and usually the snow melts and significantly raises the level of the lake up from snow and they haven't had a lot of snow it's probably something due to global warming or something
2: yeah, probably. And something. another
0: thing that really messed the lake up was Hurricane Irene in 2011 came in and gummed up all the rivers with sediment.
2: Oh uh, yeah, yeah.
0: That's why. That's why it's so shallow right there at Charlie's.
2: Yeah, I, I, it used I to
0: heard it was really deep, but now you have to go out quite a ways to, to get to deep water. You know.
2: Yeah, you could walk all the way out. Hell, halfway across the lake almost when we were there.
0: Yeah, a good a good so hundred
2: yards, anyways.
0: It's really interesting is that basically where Charlie and the boathouse are at is almost diagonally across the way from
1: yep.
2: the all-sable. Yeah, and the boadette site. Yep.
0: Yeah, so that may be significant. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I, like I was saying, you know, um, I think this is going to be a great documentary. Uh, and Karak, uh, I didn't know him be- at all before until I uh, picked him up. Well, I mean my yeah. brother picked him up that day to bring him up there, and you know he's he's a good kid he's a really good kid, really intelligent professional yeah. and uh you know he's if if uh, you're his friend, he's already proven that he'll go and go to bat for you so
0: oh absolutely, yeah, I mean, I think we've got a good organization of good people that aren't egomaniacs.
2: yes exactly a
0: four way it's a four way democracy, you know, yeah. And, yeah. and and we're under no pressure to to meet some kind of evidence quota, so we can run to the newspapers to look like experts either. Yeah,
2: exactly. We're not we're not uh, fame driven.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean we're making an honest effort to critically examine what's there and see if there is anything there. I think yeah. there is, or I wouldn't have wasted twenty seven years looking. Yeah. Right, so yeah. <laughs> but we got to find it. You know.
2: Yeah, that's the thing. You know, we-, we gotta
0: we gotta get over that hump and punch through that wall. And I'm willing to put in. You know, I don't know what kind of commitment you guys want to make, but I'm thinking five, ten years. If we if we've we've been working concentrated, you know, on this for ten years and haven't found anything, then we can throw in the towel. But I don't know. How, you know, let's just go and take it year by year and see what happens.
2: Yeah, hell yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely down. I mean,
0: and I'm hoping, you know, you know, most of the time I'm working by myself or with friends that help me occasionally, and a lot of my trips up there are a lot of dead time, and then maybe some short periods of intense going to do something, and then a lot of dead time, and I'm trying to get away from that to where we got a good plan. And we can get around the lake and just go boom, 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 do these things and yeah. get them done in a period of maybe, say, a week, two weeks, maybe three weeks tops, you know?
2: Yeah, but it, that's just the thing. We got to go. We got to, you know, collaborate and organize and come yeah. together so that you're there and we're there at the same time because we were only yeah. together one day, Yeah. You know? So, yeah. it'd, be, it'd be awesome if we had two weeks, all of us up there together, you know. And
0: Hopefully, we can do that this next trip. You know, I was thinking, like, maybe we could at least stay at a minimum three or four, or five, maybe five days over at Allsable.
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: Beat that to death. You know, with the underwater cameras and all that stuff. I had problems this last trip with the sonar. I couldn't get it working.
2: Yeah, how, how's, that?
0: But how's that? it was from the Netherlands, so... I'm thinking it may be a bum uh, transducer, and maybe if I just replace the transducer, that will fix the problem, but we'll see
2: yeah uh, it's all that...
0: in storage it's all in storage right now. my friend Jason's
2: oh yeah Jason uh, I know you I know Jason
0: yeah, the bigfoot guy
1: yeah
0: yeah yep. me and him's been friends for 20 years we've we met working together at this electronics factory. So we've known each other for 500 years,
2: you know? 500 years. (laughs)
0: Let's do it. (laughs) But, uh, you know, touching on the echolocation question, and plesiosaurs, they look at the skulls of fossil plesiosaurs and don't think that their ears were built to hear high-frequency sounds like that. And they don't seem to have any... Specialized structures on the skull, like you see on whales, yeah, sonar melons. So they think it's unlikely
2: that, they had that sonar. the
0: plesiosaurus from 65 million years ago used echolocation.
2: Yeah, but yeah. that's
0: the ones from 65 million years ago. That's a long time.
2: Yeah. What it about the ones that survived?
0: And then, in all that time, and they found the closest sounds among whale. Uh, echolocation that I've been able to find that sound like lizard sounds are made by a humpback whale, which is not a toothed whale. Nope. It's a baleen whale, yet it's making these echolocation-like sounds. And the important thing about this, it doesn't have a sonar melon No, like most toothed whales. So this tells you that it's possible for an animal to echolocate and make these kind of sounds without a sonar melon. And additionally, they know there are two types of birds that use echolocation. So that tells you right there, it's possible for an animal that's not a mammal yeah. to develop echolocation. Then on top of that, there's controversial evidence of penguins using echolocation. And penguins yeah. are built very much like a plesiosaur. If yeah, you look yeah. at a penguin swimming underwater... With their wings, they're flying through the water, and that's the way they think plesiosaurs moved when they swam. In fact, one paleontologist, Robert Barker, called them double penguins because plesiosaurs are built like they got a double set of penguin wings the way their are built. So this, you know, this is very interesting. And finally, on top of that, there is some evidence of echolocation-like sounds from these Australian long-necked turtles. Yep, yep. Which are very plesiosaurish in the way they're built. So if you, you look at all that put together, it may mean something. We just don't know yet. But it's possible. Hey just using those clues to say, well, maybe it's possible that a plesiosaur, given sixty five million years
2: yep. out well, of the ocean,
0: could have developed this you know, this ability. Yep. We just don't know yet. I mean, it's a lot of speculation, but it is within the realm of possibility. I right? agree. Yeah.
2: Most definitely.
0: Yeah. So tell us about some of your Bigfoot stuff.
2: Ah, my Bigfoot stuff, huh? (laughs) I've been out uh, actually investigating a few spots just uh, recently. Um, But uh, most of the uh, big-time activity that I've encountered uh, was back, um, like, 2000, going back to 2012, I think. Um, I don't know if you know a guy named Ronnie LeBlanc. He wrote a book, Monsterland. I, yeah,
0: he was on that, um...
2: Bigfoot show. It was
0: a Bigfoot show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know where yep. it
2: is. Well, him and his buddy, I, I guess they, you know, they went and his buddy was out going fishing with his wife and, uh, they heard something making noise in the woods and stuff and, you know, they got all scared and they actually got lost. But on their way back, they're walking the same trail And all of a sudden, there was these human-like tracks. There were six of them that, like, kind of, like, it jumped out of the bushes, and there were some deer prints, and the deer prints stopped, and it looked like it jumped back into the bushes. And so, I heard about that, and I was literally probably about 10 minutes away from this area. So, I went and I headed on on up in there, and... Uh, you know, the the structures that you you find, you know, a lot of, you see a lot of these structures and, you know, if you just look around, you can tell it's, you know, a, a deadfall, a branch went and fell and hit this and fell like this or, you yeah. know, something happened. You know, so people take pictures of these ridiculous ones that just, you know, you got to go and investigate them a little bit and, you know, kind of de- debunk it. But uh, I was finding, we we're finding these wood structures and, you know, I'm with my dad and my brother and most of the time doing bigfooting, and, uh, you know, we grew up pretty much in the woods and. You just I never remembered seeing these weird teepee nexes and stuff in woods before. And uh, so I got a lot of evidence like that and uh, some possible prints and stuff. But um, one day, me and my brother actually went and we uh, we found a nice print. It was like uh, there was a big mud hole. And it's like this thing tried, the Bigfoot tried jumping across it, but just didn't make it all the way. And is, you it know, just caught one of his feet. And, uh, we were able to cast that and that's actually, uh, I got that up on my Facebook page. It's, uh, next to my foot and I'm a size 12 and I think that's a size 15 and a half, 15 and a half. And, um, I also got some pictures and stuff like that, that, uh, could show some possible eye shine, three sets of eye shine. Uh, I was actually ended up by myself. <laughs> my group left me,
1: <laughs>
2: ah. um, because, uh, Sometimes when you're with groups and stuff like that and you're in the woods, a lot of people talk and stuff, and they'll, they'll kick leaves and stuff like that, and so you can't hear anything. So I like to hang back so I can go and, you know, hear things. And um, that night to my back right, something was definitely following us. It was paralleling us. And uh, my brother came back and asked me why I was way, you know, in the rear. And I said, Ryan, just when I say stop, stop and don't say nothing. And so we walked and I said stop. And he stopped and all of a sudden you just heard crunch, crunch, crunch. Like something took a couple extra steps. And I'm like, something's following us. And the uh, other guys got scared. So they wanted to get the hell out of there. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, this is why this is why we're here. So they they continued walking and stuff. And I went and I stopped. And I didn't realize they had gotten so far from me. But I was hearing things, you know, snaps, loud snaps. Um, and I just went and took, took these pictures in a uh, quick series. And that's when I caught the possible eye shine and stuff. But, um, we had, a uh, another, uh, well, I lived to survive that encounter but anyways, made it back to the car. But, um, one time I was, uh, it was January 24th, my dad's birthday. And it was, uh, we had just gotten uh, some snowfall about maybe five inches and me and my brother, we just went for a hike. And we were uh, just walking, and there was no other tracks up there, you know, nothing. There was just a, some canine tracks, a coyote. And uh, we're just walking, and all of a sudden, we hear these two super loud knocks. I mean, whap, whap. So loud. It, it wasn't like what you hear, uh, you know, the guys who try to do the Bigfoot knocks. It wasn't anything like that. These were fast and loud. And uh, stopped us dead in our tracks. And then in the distance, there's a lot of uh, rock walls up in there because it used to be an old settlement that failed back in the 1700s. And all of a sudden, you hear two rocks clack together, clack, clack. And so we're looking around. We can't see anything. And, uh, but I mean, whatever it was, it it had some force when it hit that tree (laughs) because it was loud. They like to throw rocks, apparently, too. Oh, yeah. I've had, uh, I've had, uh not a not a log but a decent sized branch thrown over my head. Um I had one actually mimic a whistle. I did a whistle one time and I just like and then all of a sudden, ten seconds later, something did it right back to me. I don't know if it was a bird mimicking me, but it was pretty cool. Um that same day though with the snow, me and my brother were coming back, heading back down the trail and we start we get to where there's there's this corner and all of a sudden we hear these whoops. And uh, it was like,
1: whoop, whoop, whoop.
2: I can't do it properly, but, you know, that gives you an idea. And I'm thinking, all right, there has has to be people here. So I go and I run up around the corner. There's no people, no tracks. And then I'm thinking, you know, well, there's a little swamp over here on on the left side. Maybe that iced over and the air is coming up from underneath, you know, making sounds, you know, trying to debunk this. I'm not just going to go and say it's Sasquatch because I heard some weird sounds in the woods, you know. Yeah. So, but no, it was all slush and stuff, and then we ended up, we made it back to the car, and we heard this long, drawn-out howl to the west of us, pretty far away, but whatever it was, it had some lungs on it. So,
0: have you ever been up to investigate the Bridgewater Triangle?
2: No, I have not gone and headed out that direction. I've been Jason, in the Bridgewater.
0: Jason's been up there and looked at that. He, he found a footprint cast.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I've never seen his cast.
0: Yeah.
2: If the, um... So,
0: so, tell me your uh, impressions of what theories about Champ that you lean toward, about what kind of animal you think it
2: is. Uh, jeez, I've been really rattling this around a lot lately because, uh, you know, I've heard the giant turtle theory, and I've seen the evidence that supports the giant turtle theory. And, you know, then you get the plesiosaur theory, you know, and I've always thought that Cryptoclitus would have been a perfect candidate for, you know, a plesiosaur in one of these, you know, a lake-bound ples- plesiosaur. Um, I don't know if you've seen the uh, John Gillies, uh Film there Close when yeah oh yeah
0: With yeah and uh,
2: if yep. you look at, yeah and like if you look at the side of its head it's got like a indent almost you know and it I saw something where someone put a crypto skull right next to it
0: probably something I did
2: probably is <laughs> and it looks very similar so you know then the, that and then but then you get the echolocation and. It's like, you know, what the heck are we dealing with? What are What is this animal, you know? Is it a uh, amphibian, you know? Is they able to absorb oxygen through its skin? Um, well, you, you know, know like,
0: these Australian turtles have this trick where they have a sack that lines the inside of their butt and they turn it into a fish gill, basically. So they're yeah. underwater like a fish.
2: Yeah, and they can, they, so so they can...
0: If a turtle or a plesiosaur had this ability... They could stay under for a long time. Yeah, Maybe not as long as a fish, but
2: yeah, but you know they very rarely have to come up for air, which would go and make it make spotting them that much harder. You know. Yeah. And also, we don't know how these animals, you know, if they have if they have nostrils on the front of their face, you know, like say like you know a seal or something, yeah. or if they have the protuberances on top of their heads, you know. Then those that might be snorkels or they have nostrils like a, you know, brachiosaur would have or something, yeah. you know. Yeah. But we don't, we don't know, we don't know anything about how they go <laughs> and they breathe. Well, so people, when people say, you know, oh, why don't we see them so much more when they go and they come up, you know, yeah. because all oh, it is is a little tiny, you know, little black thing comes up and then there it is gone.
0: One, one thing, one aspect of this a lot of people don't think about is that even if we are dealing from some with something that has survived beyond its extinction in the fossil record, it's had additional time to change and evolve, so it's not necessarily yeah. going to be exactly like the animals we know from the fossil record.
2: Yeah, exactly. They've had 65 million years to go and, you know, yeah. have some work done to them.
0: <laughs> yeah. If Basilosaurus has evolved, it's had an additional... 35 million years to change yep what we know from the fossil record too so that's a long time too yeah you know? Yeah, it
2: is. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a very long time think about it yeah. You know the dinosaurs ruled this world for <laughs> Crap you know what
0: hundred fifty from... million years.
2: Yeah a and, long uh, time. And, and you think about us and we're just peons
0: <laughs> Yeah, we've only been around what? 100,000, 200,000 yeah, so, years tops.
2: Yeah, something like that.
0: In a rec- recognizable form. Form, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah I've seen, you know, I've seen skulls,
0: all human. Yeah,
2: I've seen skulls from like I think two million years ago, where it's got an ape-like shape, but I don't think it probably looked like us too much. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the big you know,
0: bipedalism it's... came along before the big brain, though.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so it did.
0: you know, walking around. On two feet, apparently, freed up the hands to do things. Mm -hmm. And the development of using the hands to do things
2: developed the brain,
0: increased the size of the brain. So it's a vicious cycle that made us what we are today.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, uh, any any final thoughts or whatever you want to add?
2: Um, no, just that uh, I'm really glad that uh, I'm part of this team with you, you, you know, and...
0: Well, I'm glad think, to have you on board, too, you know?
2: Yeah, I think we got a good group of guys who are determined and, you know, we're motivated. So...
0: We trust each other, which is important, and we're not going to stab each other in the back.
2: No, we're not backstabbers. That doesn't happen.
0: And I, we're not phonies. We're not... We're using it all using our real names. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. We've got nothing to hide. Nothing. So There you go. You know. Yep.
2: If you got a question you want to ask me, ask me and I'll answer it.
0: Yep. That's the way it should be.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, you it don't
0: have on the table.
2: People don't have to go and say things behind people's backs and be all nasty and stuff. You know, just if you want to want to ask me a question, you want to know something, just ask me and I'll tell you. Yep. So I'm glad that we're not of that type to go yeah
0: well you and i have gotten to know each other a little bit over the years so yeah yeah if there was going to be any problems i think we've already hit some kind of snag you know
2: i am uh, I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure that we would have already gone and figured things out <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think, i'm pretty sure we're good <laughs> yeah absolutely it probably would have been around when i first met you if there was ever going to be a problem
0: <laughs> well yeah i mean we we didn't have a problem right off the bat
2: and we we know why that would have been.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, tell your brother Ryan I said hi. I will. Yep. Well, thank you. Ah, uh, no problem. Anytime. And uh, I'll see you next summer. Alrighty. Take care. Yeah. You have a good night. You too.
2: Video brings you the haunted sea with host Scott Mardis.